Partly the record which had been found a long time before had been worked on for some time now and archaeologists had um, very professionally sectioned off the wreck in areas that needed to be done and searched methodically um, on the water. So she gave us our instructions and dive we did straight down the, the marker rope to the, the Mary Rose. Aquanaut. My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. So we needed to return to the infamous Wellstone. We knew we had a great find, but the question was, we needed time to recover it all. And uh, as I've said many times, uh, the stone, which is what locals called it, was a treacherous place. In fact, I want to make it clear to you all that all that what we did on the stone sounds very easy, but in fact, it was far from that. It was very stressful and very risky because it's such a treacherous area. And of course, very unpredictable. There were always the strong currents to contend with. There was always the heavy ground sea, which made lifting and salvage much more difficult. Then the promise, the problem, sorry, of a limited time for each dive. And that was exacerbated by the hard physical work and effort, working on the water, getting greater, greater consumption of nitrogen because of the fact we were working so hard. For me personally, uh, I hated the place. To me it was hell on earth, and each dive I was always very apprehensive. And of course, we dived alone, and uh, that was always a hazard not to be forgotten. And of course, sea conditions, the weather, uh, unpredictable. We used to try and get a good forecast before we left, but we'd been caught in the southeast of the gale before, and nearly uh, lost the boat. We didn't want that to happen again. So, bearing all this in mind, every time we went out to the stone, we had to be pretty damn careful and know what we were about. So on this next dive, we set off as usual um, in reasonable weather, taking two hours to motor out to the Wellstone. Uh, conditions were not perfect, by the way, but uh, it was viable that we thought we'd have a crack at it. And that's before we used uh, our photograph echo sounder to locate the boiler of the wreck of the Moorview. This we did quite easily. We then, then went ahead of it, anchored ahead of the border, and drifted back directly over it. The next procedure, of course, is Bob to go down uh, with the lifting wire. 
and secure it to the right beneath. And then we pull the aquanaut over, the motor hole over, directly over the wreck. There's a vertical line from aquanaut down to the wreck. And of course, the next task is for Bob to go down and retrieve all these brass rolls. Hard work dragging them across the bottom and prizing them away from each other and then fixing them through the, looping them through the lifting wire and getting them pulled up by the winch. How many rolls Bob took that day on his dive, I don't know, but it was considerable. And the lorry spring I mentioned before was very useful in taking the rise and fall of the boat above the wreck and not snapping the rope. So he got that off to a fine art and uh, we're now lifting the brass rolls at about two at a time, bearing in mind that they were very heavy. So after Bob finished his first dive, it was now me. I had to go down and do the same thing. And uh, I soon found myself at the bottom heaving up these heavy brass rolls one at a time to the lifting wire, looping them through and sending them up. I might tell you it was very hard work and quite exhausting. How many I did on that first dive, I don't know. But on this particular day, Bob and I dived twice. We did the same thing, down to the brass rolls, freeing them and sending them up to the surface. At the end of the day, we were quite exhausted and uh, we realised that uh, we couldn't do any more that day and so we came home full of the joys of spring, having lifted, I don't know how much it was in weight, but it, but it, was, it was considerable and uh, well worth our while. Lifting the brass rolls, of course, was not always the, the end of the diving. Um, we had to free the lifting wire. And then, of course, it was a question of steaming up and putting the anchor up. And the anchor, of course, was often caught in the wreckage of the moorview. And uh, it was always a problem, the possibility that we couldn't free it with the boat. And some one of us would have to go down and free the anchor. That was something I always dreaded. But we were very lucky on the Lonestone. The anchor never got snagged and we were able to, to uh, free it and motor home. been talking about the hard work diving on the stone and doing the salvage work but I might tell you we had some funny times as well and I'll give you a, an example now. Uh, on this particular day we were all very tired, we were motoring home and uh, as often was the case we were frequently passed by the 
um, the Salonian, the, the ferry boat that took passengers and cargo across the Arthur Sea, and she often passed us on the way home from the city house to Penzance. Um, we th- on this particular day, we thought we'd have some fun. For some reason, we could see she was getting very close to us and steaming very fast. And we thought, well, we'll have a, a bit of a bit of a funny session here. In short, we decided to be to look like pirates. Um, we tied Bob to the mast, stripped him to the waist, tied him to the mast of Aquanaut, and in the galley we had some tomato ketchup, which we always had when we caught our fresh fish to eat. And so we plastered the tomato ketchup over Bob's back, and as the Salonian came close by, all the passengers who'd been on their holiday in the Isles of City, looking on, only about less than 50 yards from us, um, we started lashing Bob with the rope's end and uh, Bob was uh, screaming out in agony and uh, it must have looked extremely authentic and uh, quite a laugh at the time quite what the passengers thought uh, seeing poor Bob be, being tortured and whipped with the skin coming off his back and all the blood uh, it must have been a very authentic sight we never knew, of course, the result of uh, what the passengers might have thought. <laughs> but it was a bit of a fun thing to do, and uh, something we actually uh, didn't do again. So that was on our, our way home. I want to add now that um, getting back to Newland Harbour, of course, we always had the problem of unloading all the brass rolls and uh, we wanted to be sure that the receiver were wrecked in the Coast Guard and indeed the Newly Harbour Master were not serious on loading all this brass and uh, we did not have any intention of declaring it to the receiver of wreck. We managed to do it however usually late in the evening or under the cover of darkness and load it in the van and uh, that was uh, always a problem we had to consider uh, when coming home. Incidentally, um, the next problem was was getting rid of getting rid of all this brass and selling it. So we decided not to deal with a scrap dealer locally. Um, we dealt with a with a scrap dealer who was two two hour drive from Penzance. We thought the further away we went the less likelihood of us being reported. So I won't say where it was because I uh, might get somebody into trouble. But uh, we did do that two-hour drive away. Um, of course, when we got to the scrap dealer, he was always amazed at how much brass we had. And uh, he always paid us in cash. So we did very well out of it. And uh, always stopped on the pub on the way home and had a meal to celebrate. So that was our way of getting rid of the scrap metal. There's another interesting part to uh, 
diving on the Wells Town, which involved my family, in fact. And um, I had an Uncle Jack who uh, lived in Penzance, up in Madrid, in fact. And he was a retired Trinity House manager from the Trinity House docks at Penzance Harbour. And I got a call from him to say he must see me. It was a matter of urgency. I didn't know what it was all about. So the following day, I think it was a, a weekday, I went up there to see Uncle Jack. Well, to cut a long story short, he told us that our boat, Aquanaut, was being watched by the Coast Guard of Tolpet and Penworth Coast. And uh, bearing in mind that we were about three quarters of a mile out from the coast, so the Coast Guard, of course, had powerful binoculars, and they were watching everything that we were doing. And it had been reported back um, to the customs officers at Newlin, and they wanted to know what the aquanaut was doing on the Wellstone. Now, to make matters even worse, the problem was, of course, that we were always diving in the same spot. And so this became suspicious. Why should this same boat be always returning to exactly the same spot and spending all day there, working all day? What were they lifting? What were they doing? What were they up to? Well, it turned out to be quite funny, quite the opposite to what I expected, because we found out later that it was nothing to do with salvage. Apparently, the French crabbers, fishing boats, had been coming over from France and dropping boxes of drugs off Land's End in, and uh, with the view that they would be recovered by divers at a later date. So the Coast Guard thought that we were dropping, we were recovering drugs dropped by the French fishermen, the French crabbers. Of course, which was not the case. Anyway, in the event, Uncle Jack did warn me, but I can tell you now, we never heard any more about it. We never heard anything from the receiver of wreck, nothing from the Coast Guard, uh, nothing from the customs and excise. So uh, that warning uh, was useful, but uh, turned out to be nothing to do with our salvage and only to do with drugs coming into Cornwall from France. of course that um, while we had done very well on the milestone recovering all these brass rolls there was a lot more to get up not more to lift and it meant going out there many times to do this we we're always limited with our dive, on, dive time onto the water limited by all the restrictions and problems I've outlined um, it meant going back several times to complete the salvage so I will not go into each dive on the Wellstone because it's very samely and we followed the same procedure. All I will tell you was it took a long time all that summer to recover what was left of the salvage. We recovered a very worthwhile amount of scrap metal, um, quite valuable, and we did very well out of it, put it that way. And uh, in terms of weight, I don't know, it was, it was probably several tonnes, that we lifted from the wreck of the Moorview. And uh, 
Of course, we always got paid cash at the same scrap dealer, so we all did very well out of it. But I might tell you, it was not earned easily. It was hard work, risky, and I guess maybe that's the idea that the scrap dealer had in mind when he spoke to us. You boys must have worked very hard to get this, he would say, and taken a lot of risks. Of course, he was right, and uh, we got the reward of those risks, but I can tell you now, it was damn hard and always very risky. So that finalised our dive on the Moorview. We did go there again on several occasions, searching our wreck for what else we could find. Um, the gun, of course, was still there, which we couldn't possibly lift because it was too heavy. Uh, we had no sign of the condenser, which must have been there, uh, but we couldn't find it. It was probably covered with wreckage. So we decided to call it a day on the Moorview. Um, and I was particularly pleased because I, I hated diving on the Lonestone. It was spooky, it was treacherous, and it was risky. And to be quite honest with you all, I was very glad and relieved that our salvage on the Moorview and on the Lonestone had come to an end. Oh, by the way, I almost completely forgot, on one such dive on a Lonestown, Bob surfaced and uh, I could see that he was struggling. How he made it back to the boat, I don't know, but he had found the ship's bell. In fact, it was an enormous bell. He must have inflated his life jacket to give him the extra lift and bring it to the surface. But he was really struggling. We leaned over grabbed it from me and took it on board the boat, anticipating, of course, that we find the, the name of the ship engraved on the bell. But there was nothing. It was completely blank. But the bell was a good 12 inches or 14 inches or so diameter. It was a very heavy bell. And how in the Lord's name Bob was able to lift that from the seabed and bring it to the surface, he must have been incredibly strong to do it. So we never found out the name of the ship to be sure. But we knew it, we thought it was the Moorview, and to this day I still think it is the Moorview. But uh, the bell was, of course, given us definite proof. Maybe it was just a spare bell that she was carrying, but uh, no name to the bell. And uh, that bell continued in our lives. Every New Year's uh, Eve, when we had a, a party, of all the divers, we'd ring the old year out and the new year in with the ship's bell um, off the milestone. So that was a terrific find, but disappointing in as much that it wasn't inscribed with the name and the date of the ship. I want to talk now about my dive on the wreck of Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, that sank off Portsmouth Harbour um, in the 16th century. Now, this took place around 1981 82, 
can't remember exactly when. However, I want to stress that I had given up diving in Cornwall around about 1971. I actually moved away from Cornwall to live in Essex and Warwickshire. And uh, so my dive on the Mary Rose happened much later. And it only happened because I then moved to Sussex to work and was invited by the Chichester Diving Club to dive with them on the wreck of the Mary Rose. Now, I want to stress that this was hardly organised. The archaeology around the diving and recovery of artefacts from the Mary Rose was very professionally organised. The chief archaeologist was called Margaret Rule, and she had um, always needed volunteer divers to dive on the wreck. And that's because, principally, the archaeologists themselves were not divers and they needed experienced people to dive safely on the wreck to recover all the artefacts and to survey the wreck professionally, properly. So on this particular day, I think it was a Sunday, I went with my brother John from the Chichester Tobacco Club and we went down to Portsmouth and we met uh, a very nice greeting by Margaret Rule, who was welcoming volunteer divers and um, the conditions that day, I might add, were not very good. The sea was pretty rough. It was overcast, cloudy, dark. And so uh, we knew that, from I knew from experience, that in those sort of conditions, uh, you wouldn't get very good visibility. So we pumped up our inflatable boats outside the harbour and motored out and met Margaret Rule on site. The dive boat located there was quite a big boat that she was uh, organising all the archaeology from. And uh, on arrival, she gave us a briefing of exactly what she wanted us to do on the water. Apparently, the record, which had been found a long time before, had been worked on for some time now. And archaeologists had done um, very professionally sectioned off the wreck in areas that needed to be done and searched methodically um, on the water. So she gave us our instructions and dive we did straight down the, the marker rope to the, the Mary Rose. Though I might add it was an incredible sight, the, although the visibility was poor, you could see the huge wooden ribs of the Mary Rose sticking up in a row. And um, I would say the visibility was no more than about five to six feet. And of course, the closer you got to the mud, the whole wreck was in, encased, completely embedded in mud, black mud. And um, of course, that covered up all the, the historical artifacts, all the archaeological things of interest were buried in the mud including, of course, the remains of all the crew. And, of course, later they discovered many skeletons on the Mary Rose. But on that particular day, uh, I certainly didn't find any. But, however, I was not anxious to, to be honest. So I recall um, making my way, and the, the bed of the ship was laid out in sections, square sections, I would say about 
no more than five feet square in, in bright coloured tape, which had been done by the archaeologists. And the plan was to have a basket, which we took down with us, and to put in that basket any artefacts which we might find in each section. We were located one section each, and the idea was that you could, with your hand gently, move the mud away and try and pick up any artefact that, of course, would be interesting. Well, of course, we never knew what we were going to find. I mean, history has now told us that the whole wreck contained a sociological history of the whole of the 16th century. Everything that people wore, the tools they used, to the things they ate, um, and of course to the people themselves who were on that ship when she sank on that fateful day. I recall finding um, some cannonballs, I forget how many, some, several cannonballs I found, um, two different sizes, but most of all I found lots of musket shots which I was able to pick out of the mud and put in the basket to bring up. So uh, the difficulty was you couldn't orientate yourself. You couldn't get any idea of the scale of the ship because she was in fact a big ship for the 16th century. And um, all wooden, of course. And um, on that particular day, I think some other divers had found clay pipes and some leather shoes which belonged to the crew, which we saw when we surfaced on the boat, on the dive boat, with the archaeologist Margaret Rule. So it was a very interesting dive. The visibility was so bad, and of course when you took your hand gently in the mud to move the mud away, it all goes up into a cloud, a grey cloud, and of course that makes the visibility even worse. So we had to do it very gently, to make sure we weren't disturbing or damaging any valuable archaeological finds, artifacts. So we had a good dive that day, my brother John. Um, I must have been down for a good 45, 50 minutes. It was in fact between 45 and 50 feet in places, I remember. Um, but the whole dive was, um, I might add, much more difficult because you couldn't simply orientate yourself to the scale of the wreck. And um, on surfacing, Margaret Rule was quite pleased with the finds that day. I can't remember everything that was found. And of course, um, uh, pleased that we'd given up our time uh, um, to dive on the wreck for her. Since that time, of course, the uh, Mary Rose has been raised. Um, thousands of Fantastic 16th century artifacts have been found, um, and of course, now a famous museum built in Portsmouth Harbour containing the entire ship, what was left of it, and on display thousands of interesting things, including skeletons of, of people, um, dogs, and uh, various other things that were used bows and arrows. Um, even trinkets they, they wore on their bodies, from earrings to bangles, um, from arrows to uh, archers' bows, uh, everything you could that would go that would be needed for a ship to be fully manned 
in the 16th century. In fact, what it was, was a complete mirror image of the time of the 16th century. And a, a fantastic find, of course. I had been invited several times to dive again on the Murray Welsh, but decided not to. I forget why I didn't, but uh, I didn't dive on it again. But uh, it was my last dive, my last ever dive. I decided to give up diving, and uh, I was in my 30s. I wanted to give it up because I had a good a good uh, time in Cornwall, and uh, I decided that that would be the end of my diving life. So that was my dive on the Mary Wells. On my next episode, I want to talk about the exciting time we had raising a Bristol Bowfighter aircraft from the RAF from the Second World War that uh, ditched in Mount's Bay. It was quite an exciting time and quite an achievement. It was done by Joint Penzance and Hampstead Diving Clubs. <laughs>